Welcome, everybody, uh, to Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 656. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, we have some special guests named Nate and Kaylee Klemp. Welcome, Nate and Kaylee. How are you this morning? Great. Happy to be here. Doing well. Thanks so much for having us. Um, sweetie, what did Nate, why are Nate and Kaylee here and what do they do and who are they? I get to read your bios, you guys. You ready? You ready to hear about yourself? It's pretty impressive. Okay. I'm going to start with Nate. Nate Klemp, PhD is a former philosophy professor and a founding partner at Mindful. He is co-author of Start Here, a New York Times bestselling guide to mindfulness in the real world. Nate received his BA and MA from Stanford University and his PhD from Princeton University. And then Kaylee Klemp is a highly sought after executive coach specializing in building trusting and synergistic teams. She is also an Enneagram expert, which I love, Kaylee. I want to talk about that. Mm. Certified um, Young President's Organization Facilitator, TEDx Speaker, and co-author of the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. She received both her BA and MA from Stanford University. Welcome, you guys. Thank you for being here. Um, When did the book come out? The book came out last February, so February 2021, and paperback just came out about a month ago. Oh, good. And the name of the book, yeah. by the way, is The 8080 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Relationship. I have a whole slew of notes that I'm already surrendered to the fact that we will not get through. So I'm going to try my best to pick out the most important pieces, but I figured a good place to start is at the very beginning of the book. I did read the book. Sometimes I don't always read the books, but this one mm-hmm. I happen to read. I'm a really slow leader, uh, reader, but uh, for whatever reason, I thought this was important enough for me to get through. Todd's a very committed reader. Like we have these discussions uh-huh. about like the way we read because I'm a total, like I I'm, I don't like to use the word speed reading because I think that's an actual thing, but I'm a, I just kind of go through really quickly. He is really committed. So just so you know, he read every word of your book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. So you, you both start the book out by a story of maybe one of the more challenging moments in your marriage. And it had to do with Nate's habits of kicking off his shoes. And I wonder if Kaylee or Nate want to talk about what that story is about, because I think we can all relate to it. Well, since it was my bad habit, maybe I should begin and you can add some color. The story really is the story of when we first moved in together, which was, I think now 17 years ago. And like many couples, we had a set of habits that were very different from one another. Kaylee was a full adult. She had a job. She had a 401k. I was in graduate school living in a dorm. And so that was the context that sort of marked the beginning of our relationship. And I had this habit of walking into the house, kicking off my shoes just into a random clump in front of the door. And that habit turned out to be one of our first fights or a trigger for one of our first fights where Kaylee decided one day she was going to hide my shoes in like one of those high up cabinets above the refrigerator that nobody uses. And that was really the beginning of a long series of explorations, I guess you could say, into how to do this thing called relationship and eventually marriage together. Um, Kaylee, what were your thoughts about Nate's shoes, shoe habits? Well, I think that this was the catalyst for us to start to explore fairness because that was the angle that I came to it with. It was like, it's not fair that I am picking up your shoes because you're casually kicking them wherever you feel like kicking them. And it's not fair for me to have to track them down. It's not fair for me to have to put them away. It's not. And so it felt like 
this whole notion of what does it look like to be fair in your partnership was the lens that I was seeing shoes Mm -hmm. and really most things at that point in our relationship. Is it fair who makes dinner? Is it fair who goes to the grocery store? Is it fair who cleans up? Is it fair who's inviting social friends over? So for many years, that was really the lens I saw things through. Awesome. And we are going to get to the six faces of fairness that you talk about in the book. But first, um, we're going to talk about each of the three models that you explain in the book one at a time. So briefly, but without missing too much. So, and I invite you to kind of try your best to kind of walk that line. What is the 80-20 model? The 80-20 model is where we begin in sort of the 1950s and before. And this is really the model where one person, typically the woman, is responsible for the well-being of the marriage. And one partner, typically the man, is only responsible for about 20% of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And the way that we thought it made sense to describe this model was through the rules for wives and rules for husbands that was published and promoted at that era. Mm -hmm. And I actually pulled up the page because I thought it was so wild that it starts with some you know, rules for husbands and they seem dated, but not crazy. Things like, remember your wife wants to be treated as your sweetheart always, or don't be stingy with money, be a generous provider. You go, okay, I mean, it's gendered and dated, but that's not, that's not nuts. But then it switches over and the rules for wives are, be a good listener, let him tell you his troubles. Yours will seem trivial in comparison. Or never hold your husband to ridicule in the presence of others. If you must criticize, do so in private and without anger. You're like, okay, that's, that's good advice, but don't try to boss him around. Let him wear the pants. It's very like, Oh my goodness, this, this is dated. Mm. Well, it's so interesting. Uh, never hold up your husband to ridicule in the presence of others. I'd say that's a good rule for right? both yeah, partners. Why is good it advice? Why exactly. is it a woman? For totally. Well, and you guys, I have to say last night, Todd was doing some notes for today. And I don't know why you were doing them auditorily. You were saying them to yourself. Because I typed like a chump. So So he was (laughs) saying them. And and I was sitting in a chair next to him. We were kind of watching the masters. It was on in the background. And then he started saying them out loud. And I kept looking at him. I'm like, what are you reading? Because just like you said, Kaylee, the first couple ones, I was like, okay, you know, whatever. And then he said the one, you know, then he started saying the one about women. And I'm like, please tell me this isn't like, you know, Mm -hmm. now. So it's just great. Um, Okay. So we need to mention this woman's name because Kathy and I have done many, many episodes uh, on emotional labor, or some people call it invisible labor. We've had um, the woman who wrote Fed Up. What's her name? Gemma Hartley. Gemma Hartley on. um, it's such a foundation. Yeah, yeah. It's such a foundational mm-hmm. principle, but you all found out who came up with that term, which I didn't know, Kathy, you probably did. Arlie Hochschild. Yeah. Arlie Hochschild. She's a sociologist at university of Colorado or California, Berkeley. And exactly. She, and she just finds emotional labor that has to do with who's handling the tensions, who's mindful of them and who takes it as their work to make everything run smoothly, smoothly. Um, we, like I said, we can do a whole hour on this topic Mm -hmm. and we've done multiple hours, but I think it's important that we at least uh, talk about it. The last thing I want to do before we move on from the 80, 20 is one thing I thought was interesting. You talked in your book about conservative Christian activists, promoting gender equality in marriage and conservative families, switching the husband to stay home role. It's not the mainstream narrative, but what you found out, and I, I want you to explain more 
that it was surprisingly open to, um, I guess, equality. So I just want to hear more about that because that surprises me. Yeah, this was really interesting. And in a way, this was a full circle moment for me in my life because before I wrote about mindfulness and before I wrote about relationships, I was a PhD student writing about political rhetoric. And in particular, I was studying Christian right political organizations and trying to understand how they were using rhetoric and how they were thinking about things like marriage and Mm -hmm. sexuality. And so when it came to this project, you know, I wanted to go to that community and really understand, you know, how are they thinking about marriage? And is it somehow different than the way people in our hometown of Boulder, Colorado, which tends to be quite liberal, think about marriage? And it turned out that at the core, when it came to the fundamental values animating the conversation, they believed basically the same thing as many of the liberal people in Boulder, right? They had this idea that equality is essential. You know, and I, I interviewed the head of marriage at Focus on the Family, which is James Dobson's organization in Colorado Springs, who told me, look, nobody in my community would agree to the proposition that there's somehow an inequality in marriage and that somehow the woman in a heterosexual marriage is less important than the man. So we just found that really interesting. And it was definitely counter to the narrative that that you hear in in the mainstream media, but also what we thought we were going to find. Sweetie, were you surprised by that? Yes. Like there's part, uh, yes and no. So yes, definitely. Because I feel like, as you just said, Nate, it's definitely not the, the rhetoric we hear. It's definitely not when we get really frustrated about things, how we point fingers, you know, we say, this is what you believe. This is what we believe, but I'm not shocked in that I'm in, in my book, I talk about sex education a lot because I'm a sex education teacher. Mm. And I pointed to focus on the family a few times in the book, because they actually say on the front page of their like website about sex education, that children learning about sex education do not lose their innocence. So in some ways, again, Mm. it's this misunderstanding and, and there are people in who consider themselves to be, um, you know, maybe more into in that group or consider themselves conservative who do say things that maybe counter the narrative. Mm. So I, it's shocking, but then not really. And it kind of is helpful. Like it gives me hope. You know what I mean? I kind of feel like you you probably know, you know, talking about um, politics and policies, you know, Nate, it's kind of nice when we realize we're actually on the same page. What are we fighting about in the first place? Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Well, what's interesting. So for me, it just taught me like, check my judgments or, you know, investigate Mm -hmm. my judgments. Um, Okay. So before we go into the second model, so just, I'm going to preview the listeners because it took me a while to kind of get my arms around. Okay. 80, 80, what the hell is this all about? Uh 80, 20, we started there, which is rigid gender roles. We're going to 50, 50, which Nate or Kaylee are about to explain. Um, So will you guys do your best to kind of encapsulate what 50, 50 means? Yeah. Well, if you or maybe our parents as embodying this 80-20 model. Our generation, I think, is so unique in all of human history in the sense that there's this prevailing idea that we should be equals. So we're the first generation where egalitarian relationships and egalitarian marriage is just the norm. It's not always what happens. So the statistics still say that women do more when it comes to housework and childcare, but at the level of our aspiration, this is the the new ideal. So we like to say that the question most modern couples are asking is how can we be equals and in love? 
And that because it's such a new question, there aren't really many great answers to that question. And for us, the way we answered that question was to basically say, okay, if we can just make everything in our life and our marriage perfectly 50-50 fair, then somehow we will ascend into the heavens of marital bliss and we'll be totally in love and we'll have outrageously good sex and it'll just be awesome. What we found and what probably everybody listening to this show has found who's tried to do this is that the more you keep score and you have this mental tally and you strive for this aspiration of fairness, the more you find yourself locked in conflict and you're actually getting the, the opposite of what you're trying to get out of a relationship together. Mm. So that's kind of the, the motivation behind fairness and the reason why we think in many cases and probably most cases, this idea that we can just find fairness through keeping score isn't really working for anybody, certainly wasn't working for us. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about this is that if we asked couples directly, hey, do you ever fight about fairness? They would say, no, not, not really. And yet then they would tell us stories about all the ways that they were fighting about fairness, whether it was the couple at the party where in order to have one person engage in adult conversation and somebody have, you know, some free time while somebody was watching the kids, they would set an alarm to tap in and tap out. I mean, people went to some really wild lengths that was all about making things fair, even though they weren't naming it that until they told the story. You know, I love this. So th this is what I was thinking from the very beginning when you guys were talking about your story about the shoes. So I think something that Todd and I run into a lot when, when we're thinking in this, um, you know, what does fair mean is there's sometimes a much deeper conversation about what fairness means to us, because I know that Todd is not concerned about shoes at the door he doesn't see that as a problem. Whereas I'm tripping over them and I have three children and there's too many shoes. And this is, we can't, this is not sustainable. And there's a lot of, I'm putting these away. So that's why you're not noticing it. So this whole concept of what is fair. And we talk about this with our work all the time too. Like Todd has so many hats as do I, but he has more as far as in the work career world. And he sometimes would take on more and more and more. I'm like, you have to let go of something for this to create a fairness between the two of us. And so what I'm asking in this, you guys, is did you find as you were writing this or talking to couples that their idea of what fairness meant even was different? So it was hard to get to that core answer. Yeah, that was certainly one of the central challenges that, as you say, every couple has their own, <clears throat> every couple has their own unique sort of battleground for this fight over fairness. And so for many couples, as you alluded to, fairness is about domestic labor and who's doing more, who's doing less around the house. So things like cooking and cleaning and picking up the shoes at the front door, that's the battleground for some couples. For other couples, there's a lot of argument around things like money, mm -hmm. right? So who's saving more, who's spending more? Those can be some really explosive fights. For us and for many couples, there's something around friends and extended family. Mm -hmm. Are we spending the same amount of time with my family that we're spending with your family? Mm -hmm. So there are all these different domains in which fairness shows up. And I think that is why fairness can be such a difficult to pin down concept for many couples, because it's just so variable depending on who you are and what your values are and where you sort of get tangled up as a couple. 
Well, the way you list these, the, the many faces of fairness, you have six of them listed. First one, we've already been talking about the domestic scorekeeping fight, which I think most couples can identify at least partially with all of these. But I just wondered, mm-hmm. so Kathy, as I'm asking you, after I read off the six, what do you think is our, our biggest trigger? Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. The domestic scorekeeping fight. Okay. Number two, friends and extendly extended family feud. Mm -hmm. Number three, money. Mm -hmm. Number four, that you think you're more important than me, which Mm -hmm. is a whole can of worms. Mm -hmm. Number five, free time. Mm -hmm. And lastly, the battle over blaming for past harms. Wow. Okay. So a lot of those I can, so, okay. I have to go back to the, I have to, and I am going to answer the question, Todd, I promise, but I want to go to the thing about the family piece, because we have Mm. historically talked about this and, and this, uh, this nuanced, discussion because one thing I had to point out to Todd, this was years ago when the girls were younger, but how I noticed he took so many pictures when he was with his family. Mm. And when we were with my family, he sometimes didn't even have his camera. Mm. And so it's this very like, and he's the one who puts together birthday videos and he's the one who's posting pictures. And so it was this, like, he would internally be like, I don't know what you're talking about. We're spending time here. We're spending time there. I'm like, yeah, but you're energy is all going this way and you're forgetting this way. So these conversations, and I'm sure, you know, if, if, if when we kind of wrap up at the end, I'm sure one of the most important words in your book and our discussion is the ability to communicate about these things without being too harsh and blaming and saying, this is what I'm seeing and how it's feeling. And so going back to your question, Todd, I think the the one that stood out to me the most, and I think it's going to surprise you because we've, we've, had conversations about all the others is the free time one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and it, and it isn't necessarily because it's what free time means to Todd and I, Mm. because he sometimes is like, go, go do, you know, I, I did this. So now you go, I'm like, well, I don't want to be told I have to go. I I want, Mm. do you know what I mean? Like I want to be able to choose and have the word freedom for me is huge as he knows, because I use it a lot. And I just need thinking freedom, spatial freedom, you know, like, so, but that necessitates understanding what that word freedom means a whole nother. We've been married 20 years, uh, a week ago was our 20 year anniversary. And that is always changing. What does freedom mean to me? Whereas, Mm -hmm. but when they were really little, it meant something like I need to go to the store by myself without three children on me and not feel that you're like doing me a favor, mm-hmm. right? you know, that this should be. And, and now with teenagers and there's a little more of an emotional component. So for, for you guys, what is it? Which one is it? Well, I want to build, I think free time is a really interesting one and how you're describing it with the different chapters of life and how it changes that. I think once you add a kid or kiddos to the mix, free time becomes so much more valuable. Nate describes it as domestic gold, where there is always another being who requires or solicits attention, time, energy. And so to take that step away, I think is really powerful. I think part of it is also around what you're describing in terms of what do you value as free time or what do you value as time away? I am much, much more extroverted 
than Nate is. And so part of what feels like free time to me is walking with a really good friend or, you know, having a drink with a friend or having our families get together. And in some ways, my free time, my joy can be a tax on Nate. And so I think there's an interesting dimension there around, does your free time create an obligation in the other person's world? (laughs) I think though, to answer your specific question about what do we fight about the most historically, I would say the most explosive fight is around friends and extended family. And in particular, our parents, we used to live in Los Angeles and we'd come back to Colorado where both of our parents are. And those fights that we would have about, you know, making sure that the exact amount of time was the same. And even just about the moment of transition where we would go from my parents' house to Kaylee's parents' house, like whether we were going to leave at 6.30 PM or 7.15 PM, ironically, like those were some of our most massive fights. Mm. Nate, do you find, are you like me? And what happens to me, not as much anymore, but I still do it is Mm. I go back into child. So whether it's my mom or my dad, I forget that I'm a 49 year old man. And I regress back to a seven-year-old kid wanting to Mm. please his dad at the expense of the woman I chose to marry. And I wonder if that resonates with you at all. I love that. We have actually been talking about this a lot lately that we're finding in ourselves. And I think this is probably true of most married couples who are in our age demographic, who have kids, that there's this subconscious way in which we still feel like we're living with our parents Mm -hmm. or like somehow they are the boss of our life, you know? And so our parents will make some outrageous requests of us occasionally. And we feel this obligation to say yes to what would otherwise be a completely crazy request. Like if it came from a random stranger or, you know, a, a friend. friend even would be like, you can't yeah. ask that of us. Mm. Right. But we have been like trying as best we can over the last few years, I would say, mm-hmm. to just see if we can extricate ourselves from this place of feeling like our parents control our lives. And we're 42 years old with a 10 year old child. It makes no sense. Well, and I love that word extricate because you can still, so the story that, that a very old story, but it kind of lends to exactly what you're talking about is Mm -hmm. when Todd and I got married and we had to buy our first car together. um, I was like, you get a white car. That's what you do. Now, where did I learn that from? My dad, my dad loved cars. This is what you do. And this is how you take care of them. And Mm -hmm. this is what, and Todd is like, I don't want a white car. I'm like, yeah, but that's what people get. Like I was so I, I had had such, and you know, I don't like the word indoctrination because it's being used poorly right now in the world, but there is a, like a feeling of like, this is what I know. This is what I know to be true. And you have to have this small separation, not, not necessarily physically or emotionally from your birth family, but enough separation where you see, do I believe that too? Is that necessary? And even if it is true, can I make a change in my new family that I'm building? And because that makes, you know, that makes life easier. Todd and I have now been through a number of cars where if we got a white car, he probably wouldn't care, but we had to do this exercise of not getting white cars. And I'm using this as an analogy, a metaphor for so many other things where sometimes you have to choose something together Mm -hmm. because you have to make it's, and you don't even have to tell anybody, you don't have to make a stand against your family. It doesn't even need, but if one person or both of you 
are still trying to make sure that your family is correct or your family gets the most attention or the most pictures or whatever story we tell, then you're not really in partnership. You are on two different teams. So this is, you know, and I think just like you guys said, we see it at different stages. When you have a 10 year old, it looks one way. When you have a two year old, it looks one way. I also really appreciate Kathy, that one of the things you're describing is being really intentional about defining your family values, that I think one of the imprints that each of us carried into marriage and that many couples carry into marriage are the values from your own parents. And being able to look at something like a white car or what do you eat on Thanksgiving and to see that green bean casserole is not actually a mandatory dish. It's just something that's been handed down to be able to get curious about, okay, well, at a deeper level, when we start looking at values, what are our shared values and what do we want to be pursuing? Not just what we were handed or what we assume to be the the important piece of our life. Well, Kathy and I took the shared values practice thing that you have in the book. And we're going to talk about that in a second. And we're about to get to the 80-80 part, which is the third framework, which is the one that you're kind of putting your flag in saying, this is probably the best model. But really quickly, you say that there's two faces of fairness problems. One is comparison. You know, Comparison just as a general idea is probably not a good idea in most cases. But the second one, which I resonated with is the contribution blind spot. I'm wondering if either of you two want to explain what that is. Yeah. The contribution blind spot was one of the most interesting discoveries we came to when we were thinking about this and writing the book. And it comes from research in psychology, which is basically about these various cognitive biases that get in the way of our judgments of what is or isn't fair. And it turns out that we're really bad at making these assessments for two primary reasons. One is what psychologists call availability bias, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that all of the information around my wonderful and amazing contributions to our marriage, all of that information is available to me. I see all my trips to the store and taking my daughter to school. But when it comes to what Kaylee does, a lot of that is not available to me at all. Mm -hmm. And so the result of that is that I'm going to systematically underestimate what Kaylee does because much of it, I just, I'm not aware of it. He literally sleeps through the times that I bring water exactly. in the, of the night. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that, but then there's also another bias, which is this overestimation bias where they've done a lot of research on how well we estimate the amount of time we spend on things like childcare or housework. And it turns out that we systematically overestimate the amount of time we spend on these activities you know, if I say that I was cleaning for 90 minutes, it was probably more like 45 minutes, largely because this is such episodic work. We do a little bit of it, then we come back to it. And so I overestimate what I'm doing. And so if you just take a step back from those two biases, it's clear that like we're having these arguments about fairness, and yet they're based on the worst possible data and information, total delusion, essentially, you know, where we're systematically overestimating what we do, underestimating what our partner does. And that's why the fight never goes away. Mm. Oh, that's so, it, so, so because you, uh, Kaylee, are, are an Enneagram person, so I'm a two, 
Um, and nice. I totally, Todd and I have lots of discussions about the Enneagram. So I do understand my shadow and I do understand how sometimes that's my whole sense of worth is about how I'm showing up. And, you know, that's another show. We'll do that another time. Yes. And, and I can kind of live in that place of where I realize that a lot of what I do during the day, my mental work is around other people where my whole day is like, how is everybody, how is everybody's feelings? Does everybody have what they need? Is, is Todd getting what he needs? Is my mom getting what she needs? And so a lot of my energy is outward and I'm thinking about everybody else. This causes a lot of arguments between Todd and I, because he can, and again, I want you to speak for yourself, Todd. I don't want to say this is how you think, but he can go through a day and think about himself. You know, like he's, it's not, it's not about love. He loves everybody but he can be very focused on, I need to get this done. I need to do this. And at the end of the day, when we're both depleted, I, I think to myself, so I'm kind of, I want to like take responsibility for this. I think I've worked harder emotionally. You know, I think you didn't think about this. You didn't think about this. You I'm thinking about other people all day long, which is a little bit of a shadowy two ish thing, but it also is a reality of that. I feel like I'm, I have everybody I'm holding everybody up, which is not the truth, but it, it's how it looks and feels sometimes. So do you, do you guys incorporate these kind of this Enneagram understanding into how people relate to each other? We didn't do a specific lens on how each Enneagram type relates to 8080, but that would be really, really be interesting, so interesting to do. Next book. Yeah. Next book. Totally. I think that what you're pointing to Kathy, that's so important though, is that much of what you're describing is emotional labor. Mm-hmm. And emotional labor is invisible to other people and planning, strategizing, holding all of the logistical future of the family is also often invisible. And so it's hard for Todd in this case to even know, gosh, I wasn't even aware that the spelling bee was coming up. And so we needed to have some time to practice. And so to be held accountable for something that I wasn't even aware of or compared, I think reinforces this notion of our availability bias. And I cannot resist this because there's so many other things I want to get to. But one thing as I continue to evolve as a human being and as a husband, I used to say to Kathy, and I probably still do sometimes, where in, in this traditional emotional labor imbalance, I'd be like, just tell me what to do. And if I can put words in Kathy's mouth, it's like, why do I have to be the one that's telling you what to do? You make the list of invisible and visible and logistical and all these things that you need to do. Like, cause then she has a fourth child. We have three daughters. Now all of a sudden she's got a 49 year old son that just needs to be told what to do. So, and who can so easily say it's really in a roundabout way. Your fault. This didn't get done. Cause you didn't tell me. No. And if you yeah. would have told me, I would have done it. Therefore this is on your plate again. Mm-hmm. So, and again, we have great conversations around this. It sounds really the way we're describing it, very elementary, but really there's so much in there, mm-hmm. isn't there? Like where there's just so much understanding about each other. This is a really deep self-awareness and introspection about each other exercise. I actually think that in what you were just describing, you have laid out really beautifully the three elements of 8080. So if we look at it sort of as an umbrella concept with 50-50, perfectly fair as the foil, 8080 is intentionally striving to contribute 80%. Knowing that you'll never make it, we recognize the math doesn't work, but striving to contribute 80%. And really this mindset of radical generosity has the three pieces that you just described. So one is about contribution. Can I be intentionally 
trying to look for where emotional labor might be occurring? Can I look for, hey, it makes Kathy crazy when I leave my shoes, or I know that he had a really busy day. Can I anticipate what would feel really nurturing? Can I start the coffee maker because Kaylee's running behind in the shower? Those notions of contribution are really powerful. Mm -hmm. And knowing each other well enough to know what will actually land is a big deal. The second piece is really about appreciation. What are the glasses that I wear as I see my partner? Can I catch her doing something good? Can I catch him showing up in a way that's meaningful to me and name it? And I think later we can talk about how awesome it is in family systems that appreciation gets contagious. And then the third piece is I actually think really beautifully connected to what you were just talking about around revealing. Mm -hmm. How do I let you know what's going on inside? Not from a place of blame, but from a place of letting myself be known. Mm -hmm. And there's the space of, hey, I've been placing my attention out in the world. I recognize that this is part of my shadow and I could really use some appreciation, Mm -hmm. right? Or revealing Mm -hmm. these three things would look really helpful to me and Todd to say, thank you so much for telling me because my mind reading skills, they are subpar, Mm -hmm. right? That there is that notion of being willing to reveal to each other. And some of that's about upset. Some of that's about needs. And some of that's just about almost dating again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that, you know, okay. So what I love is the paradox of this, because the thing is, is I can notice my own challenges, my own biases, my own, you know, what I need and recognize that some of it may not be what Todd needs and, and having compassion for his experience and that we're not seeing the world the same way. And at the same time, recognize I still need some of it even if it Mm. isn't perfectly fit or aligned with him, but this is really who I am. So even though I understand you are not the same, it doesn't mean my way of doing it is wrong. And in one thing that was, you know, very difficult for us to, we still, we're doing much better with this, but Todd travels for work. And when he would leave and be like, and, you know, I went through the phase, especially when the girls were little, where I was just so envious that he would leave for work, right. Where he would come mm-hmm. home and be exhausted. And I'm like, yeah, but at least you got to leave and you got to choose where you had lunch. You know, we had mm-hmm. all these. And the thing is, is both are true at once. And this is what I work with. You know, Todd works with men. I work with women. And what we're trying to help them see is your needs are so valuable, but there's also something else going on at the same time. And we have to hold both at the same time. And this is really difficult because like 50, 50 rules, kind of a winners and losers, you know, like someone's right, someone's wrong. And your 80, 80 approach is how do we both bring it right. And, and also see that, see the other person's perspective at the same time. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we, um, the one part we cannot miss is the part where like, what if I'm all in on this 80, 80 idea and my partner's not, but I want to hold up before I ask that question. I want to know the answer. Because that, that is by far. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, that's the, what everyone asks us all we, the time. We've been asked that since we started this podcast. Like, I'm totally mm-hmm. in, but my husband, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, so we can have a whole show about that. Three elements of be, of the mindset, which in my judgment is, so part two of your book is all about cultivating a new mindset. Contribution, you already talked about that, Kaylee. Appreciation and this revealing idea. I think the revealing, I, I don't know if one is more important than the other. The revealing idea can get messy because I think sometimes people mm-hmm. weaponize revealing and just use it to blame. And I just wonder, and Kaylee, you touched on it, but I just wonder if you can um, 
just help us understand a little bit more about what revealing, and I'll use this term that you know, from above the line versus blaming from below the line. Help us out with that. Well, I can start here. So there's actually an interesting learning we've had since we wrote the book. And I always think that's interesting. Kathy, I wonder if you've had that experience with your book, right? That you know, you write the book and, and you think you understand the concept and then it starts to evolve. So when we wrote this, we thought of revealing primarily as a practice that comes into play when there are negative moments of misunderstanding or hurt feelings. Mm -hmm. And we still think that's true, right? That all couples have these moments where we're out of connection and we have a choice there. We can either let our connection drift even further and revert to some sort of habitual behavior of lashing out or just checking out, or we can reveal. And, and so revealing, we call it reveal and request is the practice, revealing what's really going on internally. We call it your inarguable truth, having some sort of request attached to that. So, so that is an essential practice. And we can talk about you know, how it gets messy and how to avoid that. But the evolution we've had is that we've started to see that a big part of revealing is actually not at all about the bad stuff, but it's about the good stuff. And that a lot of couples get stuck because not only are they not revealing about the misunderstandings and the hurt feelings, but they're not revealing about their amazing day at work mm -hmm. or the dream they have in their career or the thing they're really excited about or what they're thinking about when they have idle time, right? So that's kind of the way we, we think about this is that it's revealing the full experience that you're having in life and in marriage. And that without that, you just get this kind of watered down experience of being together. I mean, that, at that point, you become roommates, right? Because you're just sharing a space and handling logistics and things like that. So that's that's the basic understanding we have of revealing how it's changed in recent years. Kaylee, anything to add there? I think your question about what do you do when it gets messy is really powerful because when you're rooted in radical generosity and appreciation and responsibility, so that's part of what makes it above the line, then it isn't about blaming you did something wrong. It's I'm having this experience and I'm creating it for myself and I'm revealing it to you to create a shift in me and to create a shift in the dynamic between us. Hmm. One, one example that Kathy has brought up a few times, um, she has friends, clients that she's uh, shared, you know, with, with keeping confidentiality, they'll sit there and complain about their partner and complain mm -hmm. and com complain, complain. And then Kathy would be like, well, what did, what did he say when you said that? And sweetie, you want to take it from there? Well, and you know, I'm just being a wordsmith, but like, they're just sharing everything they're feeling, right? Even if it's not a complaint, it's just like, and then this, and I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. A lot of it's really important. And then to Todd's point, I'll say, when you share this with, with him or her, what, what do they say? And they're like, well, I didn't tell them. Right. <laughs> and I'm mm. like, well, <laughs> and so like, I'm here as a therapist or as a friend to definitely listen, but the shift that you that you know you were just referring to both of you it it has to be between the two of you you guys talked about mindful you know we can't um you know mind read and but the fear is is these i don't want to go too far down this path but we have developed this belief about what marriage looks like who we are who we are in it what we need either you know there's a lot of pop culture Todd and I do a lot of pop culture on our podcast cuz how it lends to how we show up you know like being high maintenance after when Harry met Sally was like a problem like you don't want to be someone who like has other needs. Like Todd still, 
makes fun of me lovingly about how I order food, you know, like, but this is who I am and it's okay. And even if you try and throw a label on it, this is, this is what I want to say, but we want to show up a certain way in our marriage. So we kind of pretend we don't have these challenges and probably the best, the, the way that I can you know, summarize this the best is something that we've shared a lot on the show. We've been doing it 11 years is Todd and I have the same discussions, the same arguments and the same challenges over and over and over again. And it just looks different. You know, I always say it shows up wearing different pants. Um, it's just a different. So I think couples struggle with that too, that they think once they talk about something, once it should be gone. Yeah. And I think layered on top of that is somehow pop culture created this idea that Marriage should just be easy. We should just know how to do it. And this was revealed to me after, you know, I've written 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership with Jim Dethra and Diana Chapman. Nate's written Start Here. And people will show us these books. I gave this book to my team. I love this book. And then it, with 8080 Marriage, writing in this new genre of relationships, people would say, Hey, I put 8080 Marriage in my Amazon cart and my partner saw it and they came to me and said, are we okay? Mm. Or the like, I'll put 15 commitments in the prominent place on my bookshelf, but 8080 marriage is off screen. And when you ask them about it, they say, I know that marriage is an investment and that it takes time and energy. And yet there's somehow this interesting cultural taboo about really investing in marriage, learning about it, improving at it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I want to get to that. Uh, I'm skipping so many things and that's fine. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to frame this out. So in the 80-80 marriage, and this is more just me reciting what you guys just said, dimension one is mindset. And mindset is how we think, feel, and interpret the daunting task of building a life with another person for decades to come. That's mindset. Dimension two, which we haven't really talked about, which is structure. And for me, that's like the logistics, that's the content. Mm -hmm. But what's underneath it is the mindset. If it were me, I would spend all my time on mindset. If you can get mindset right, the logistics and the structure, it's not that they don't matter, but that will take care of itself. And I just wonder if you guys interpret it the same way. I think we're pretty close to that view. We definitely believe that mindset is primary. And that's why we talked about it first. And we like to say that if you don't have a mindset of radical generosity, if you're still anchored in that mindset of 50-50 fairness, then it's not even worth trying to get the structure right because you know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to have a fight about, oh, it's not fair, et cetera, et cetera. So we like to say that you want to start with that mindset, but then structure we think is really important. And, and this really came up in the interviews we did for the book. We interviewed about a hundred people about their relationships and we would ask them questions about how they were setting up their lives. And what we started to see was this pattern of many couples just falling unconsciously into roles that they had never really thought about or discussed that didn't really make sense for them as a couple. So just one example of this is when we would ask a question like, how did you decide in your relationship who does what, right? Like who, who does each of the various roles in your life? Most couples would basically look at us, you know, in, <clears throat> in a confused way and say, well, we just kind of winged it. Mm -hmm. Like we, we didn't really ever have that conversation. We just started off with these roles and 20 years later, this is what we do. And so it, one of the things we started to see is that there's real freedom that's possible for many couples if they can shift from that unconscious model to something that's a little bit more intentional. 
And that's around your values, around your roles, around your priorities, around your boundaries, even around power. It's basically just this shift from unconscious to conscious and building and designing structures that make sense for you and your partner. So that, that was the inspiration behind that shift to structure. Yes. Yeah. I was actually just reading that chapter before I came down about roles and about like, you know, and it's also about where do you put your strengths? Like there was this point in time where, you know, I was doing, you know, the invisible labor, all the doctor's appointments and everything, but our dentist happens to be one of Todd's friends. And so I, we kind of had a discussion about, he's your friend, like you do dentist. Like, why am I going, why am I managing that or creating that or like spending time on that when this is so easy for you? And it wasn't about a, a dumping. It's like, that makes sense right? Mm -hmm. He's already can text him, talk to him. So you be in charge of that. And then now we don't even discuss that anymore. He's, he's on it. Okay. So we're going to skip to the reluctant partner question and just to get, because it's a question that we've, I've gotten all the time. And it's usually, you know, we do these in-person conferences and there's so many women that walk up to me and be like, how do I get my husband on board? Blah, 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 blah. And, um, my, the, my unfiltered response, which I usually, it usually doesn't come out is, do your own work. And what does that mean? Like investigate, get curious, be even more loving and more compassionate and see what happens. And if you could do that for like, say a month or two and nothing changes, then, then you can ask him to do, um, in a heterosexual marriage, ask him to do his work. But I find that people who are always looking at the other saying, I just wish he or she would do their work. A lot of the times we're not doing our work. So I want to pause there and just hear what you guys have to say about dealing with the reluctant partner. We certainly agree with the importance of each person doing their own individual work. With the reluctant partner in particular, we encourage the person who's all in to get really curious about how they set up the dynamics Mm -hmm. for their partner to be reluctant. And this hits home for me because I was the all in, you know, 80, 20. I was the reluctant partner. It was the reluctant partner. It's easier when you just admit it versus me <laughs> labeling you with it. Yeah, I'll say it. So, so Nate was the reluctant partner and I would nag and I would bother and I would complain and I would resent, but I set up our whole system so that actually I retained all of the control. Mm. And so I got to be comfortable resenting and complaining about, and, you know, saying to my girlfriends, all the ways that he was underperforming and not participating, but only when I started to look at, Oh, I set it up where I anticipate everything that needs to be done. And I do it so that he quote, can't mess it up. Mm. Wait a second. What is actually important that we get right? And what are the things that letting it be a different way would be completely fine? Mm. Like, could there be a basket for shoes by the door rather than me being rigid about where they go in the closet? Like they're just little things. And I actually think that finances was a place that was really poignant for the two of us where I would complain Nate spends all the time and, you know, he's not tracking and he went out and bought this super fancy bike and he doesn't really even know. Well, of course he didn't know. Mm. I gave him no insight to what our credit card bills looked like. I gave him no insight into what was coming in and out of our bank account. And so owning, I am creating this. Mm. I am setting up the dynamics where this person doesn't want to participate. 
Do you want to tell the growth yeah. story? Well, I was just going to jump in as the reluctant partner here because I think one of the parts of this dynamic that isn't discussed as much in the literature on relationships is the experience of the reluctant partner. Like the assumption is that for the free rider, which was me, everything is awesome because the other partner does everything and you're just sort of like doing whatever you want and you have this, you know, in-home service that's kind of creating all the logistics and, and whatnot. And certainly my experience, but also in interviewing other reluctant partners, what we found is that the experience of being in that position of the reluctant partner is actually incredibly painful mm. to be told that you can't do anything right, mm. that you're not contributing to the relationship mm. is extremely painful. So I think that's just worth recognizing that really on both sides, there's a lot of suffering. And so the question then becomes like, how do you start to close that gap? And as Kaylee mentioned, when the over contributor starts to take responsibility, that's a huge step forward. And then for the reluctant partner to have a willingness to sort of lean in mm. is essential. And that's why we call it reluctant versus unwilling, because there are unwilling partners out there who are totally unwilling to change. And, and I think that a lot of these tools aren't going to work at all in that situation. Yeah. But reluctance is different. There's, there's an openness there. Mm. So the next time you get asked at a conference, what do I do with my reluctant partner? One of our favorite exercises is we say, would you please come back to me with a training manual? How did you train your partner to be reluctant? Mm. And if the person engages in the exercise, when I do it for myself, I found like sometimes it's really funny and sometimes it's really heartbreaking and both emotional experiences are really relevant if you can come back with that training manual, you have a lot of ways that you can start to embrace what you were describing, Todd, those shifts in behavior, shifts in attitude, shifts in how you're showing up with your partner so that the reluctance can start to dissipate. I've never um, thought about that. They write the recipe. That's what we use in the coaching yeah. uh, content. But yeah, that's interesting. Like, How did you create this? Because what's great was when they write all these steps down. I just say, take one or two of them and do the opposite and see what yes. happens. Um, yes. Sweetie, what do you think? Yeah. You know, what I found is I, um, this was early in our marriage before podcasting and stuff. I, I was very into personal growth and very, and I still am and into self-awareness and it's just kind of the way I've always been. And Todd, um, had a great capacity for kindness and compassion and all those kind of things, but the personal growth thing was kind of like to him, you know? And so when I would try to have conversations with him about it, he didn't really love it. And so I really kind of just set that down with him and said, I'm going to do this myself and not in, not to show you, but because this brings mm -hmm. me joy. And then I learned all these things in the midst of it. Like I realized, what do I want from Todd? Well, I want, I would love to have a little more gratitude. So I started saying thank you to him all the time. I just started doing it with him. Like, thank you for taking out the garbage. Thank you for doing this. And and again, the thing is, is this gets a little cliche, but then you feel good and you feel connected. And then they're kind of like, what are you doing? That's different. Like what, what, what's going on? So you're kind of, and, and I wouldn't say I did that perfectly all the time. I've definitely had my fits and starts. This is, but the, in my best moments, I'm like, I'm just going to do my thing and love my husband from that place of me doing, you know, and then now all of our work is combined and, you know, now we're, we're on very similar paths, but it was, but I also had to learn from him about like 
not all of life is personal growth. Not everything needs to be dissected, you mm. know? So this isn't all about my way. This is about mm. like, can we see each other really clearly um, in what's most important and and have compassion for that? So as we get close to closing this out, um, look, I don't know if it's an Einstein quote. I always give it to Einstein, but nothing happens until something moves. So if you're kind of stuck in this existing framework, something, some variable needs to come in to mix it up a little bit. Um, as we get ready to close out one more quick question, why not? I, I loved what you wrote about this in the book. Why not a hundred hundred versus 80, 80? Yeah, that's a great question because if we're trying to get away from fairness, the obvious answer is to say, well, you should just do strive for a hundred percent. That's real radical generosity. And the reason we call it 80, 80 and not a hundred, hundred is that we think radical generosity is amazing, but you can also overdo this virtue in the sense that we found people when we were interviewing couples who would tell us that they actually went so far with generosity that they lost their own sense of self and they lost the projects that were important to them and their, their own preferences. You know, one man described it as just, it was like he was getting on the bus of marriage and then the bus of having kids and then he looked around and he's like, where is this bus taking me? And how did I get on this bus? Yeah. And so that's an example of the underside of going too far. And so that, that other 20% after you know, your 80% contribution is really a reminder that you probably have your own preferences and projects and aspirations that are super important and to not let go of that. Mm. So we, we don't want to go too far with this virtue of radical generosity. So the name of the book is The 8080 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Relationship. Kaylee and Nate, uh, how else do people track you? You can find us on the website, 8080 Marriage, so 8080marriage.com. There, there's an epic date night guide that you can download for free. Hmm. There's a weekly newsletter or blog where we explore various dimensions and if you're on Instagram, we are at 8080 Marriage, and daily we are engaging with folks on Instagram about various ways to enhance your marriage. Love it. Sweetie, closing thoughts? Just that I love this conversation, and it's very, um, I, you know, your book is wonderful, and I love your perspective, and I think that, you know, we didn't even, you know, I know both of you, we could probably talk about mindfulness. I mean, Nate, that's mm. like your, I mean, I we need to have another conversation because how that connects to all of this is so essential too. There's so many pieces that we could pull mm. in. So I really appreciate you guys pulling in those pieces mm. and allowing us to see marriage from a lot of different perspectives or partnerships overall, and how this just relates to it, it, how we parent, how our friendships are, you know, connection to our birth family. It's really all inclusive. So I'm putting the, for those of you who are watching, this is the book. Mm, there it is. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And we'll have you guys back on when you're when you're ready and the timing's right. And uh, we'll catch everybody else next Tuesday. Keep tracking, everybody. Thank Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are always grateful for your support. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen pre-ordering Kathy's Zen Parenting book or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we will talk to you again next week.